in your face.
Donna Summer there with her classic version of MacArthur Park. You are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Well, Stephen Hawking has been living with HIV for 40 years. And this week on the show, we're honoured to share his story. My story is coming out to my mother when I was 15 in 1969 as a homosexual. She always said she would never accept it, took me to a psychiatrist. She talked too much, so he told her that leave the room and said to me, you'll change if you want to. Guess what? I never changed. Then down the track, when I was 29, in 1983, I was told I was HIV. I was very, very blessed getting a partner in 1986, Queen's birthday, which I had for 31 years. Sadly, last December, he passed seven years ago. And I go out now sharing my story and clubbing keeps me alive. Tell us about some of the biggest changes you've seen. Well, let's say last century, the gay venues were... A safe place. I am now finding out since I was 65 that they are not so safe to go to. There's one in particular a week before my 65th birthday. I was grabbed, taken to the front and thrown so heavily into the footpath they broke my hand. So I do not have trust in gay venues anymore. What's changed them? Ice. They can be nice to your face one moment and then turn on you the second. And I think being an elder in the gay community, I should not be treated like that. Tell us about ageism and the ageism you've experienced in the community. These days I find when I go out, it's me that talks to people. It's not people coming to talk to me. And that's a little frustrating because I just love talking. (laughs) So do you feel like people have lost that sense of community connection? Oh, completely. Especially to do with mobile phones. I mean, last century we had the best time ever. We made our own fun. We dressed up in the audience to watch a show called The Alternative Miss World and all the drag queens would be on stage doing their routines, bathers, um, luxury gowns, whatever. And what we got up to in the audience with our outfits were amazing. Does it surprise you that there's this anti-drag backlash happening? Well, I was with Doug Lucas in 1975 when he first opened Pokies in St Kilda at the Prince of Wales. Every Sunday night, it was packed. He had the best show ever. I have never seen a show since. And it's sad that even the modern drags don't really care about the original drags. And now that they're... um, Seniors on pensions, 
and still go out and perform, they will fill a room, which would bring people out of the woodwork just to see them for the way they produce themselves, which is more down to worth. Don't get me wrong, I do like a lot of modern drag. Tell us about what it was like when you first found out you were HIV positive in the community here in Melbourne. Well, number one, back in 1983, we had no idea what it was. So I partied for 12 years before I got sick. And we were living in Sydney at the time. And I ended up with PCP March 95. Didn't start any medication until 96. Back in those days... PCP, pneumonia, killed so many of us. I woke up in a bed and a nurse walked past and I said, how long before this starts working? She goes, seven to ten days. I went, okay. Seven days later I was out, straight to the pub, I'm back. So you started medication just when antiretrovirals came in and you didn't go on AZT and DDI and DDC, which basically killed everybody. I decided when they kept saying to me, you want to try medication? I said, not not until I get sick. So I am so blessed I didn't do that. Because it's an exceptional story. I mean, probably 95% of people who were diagnosed when you were diagnosed are dead. Exactly. And I wonder why am I still here? And I think it's mental attitude. At the time, I didn't want to hear about it. I just wanted to keep living, which I did. So it sounds like you never actually went through a phase where you felt like you were dying. Never. Do you think that's what kept you alive, in part? Yes, and probably my, my genes as well. I have my father as my hero. If, the only reason I know I'm getting slightly older is because my father was born in 1916. He had two younger brothers, and then his mother died. His father put them in an orphanage for 10 years until he remarried and took them out. So they lived through the Depression. And then he was 27, Second World War. He joined up, went to the Middle East. On the way back, the Americans wanted the ship, so they were taken off the ship near Burma. And before the Japanese, or when the Japanese arrived, he actually told me later that he got a couple of them before they were caught. So he was a prisoner of war for three and a half years. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here. So there's a real toughness and resilience in your family. Yes. Speaking of toughness and resilience, tell us what the living with HIV community was like in the 1980s. Well, I really didn't know anything about it. It wasn't until Keith and I moved to Sydney in 1990. And because he's from, lived in Sydney... He was finding all his friends were dying. And I went, what, what the hell's going on here? And that was a shock. 
and five years later he had retired from work because he had something wrong with him but they had no idea what it was and then the next year I came down with PCP and he goes, if we don't go back to Melbourne I'm going to die here. So we got back to Melbourne, his whole attitude changed on the plane. We parted for two years until we ran out of his super. So he had to go back to work. And at that stage, I came back to Melbourne, new blood tests, new doctors. And they said, do you know you're anemic? I went, never used to be. Every week I had to go to hospital, I would collapse and have to get blood transfusions. And one day my doctor at the Alfred goes, I'm going to try something else. It turns out that I had a parvovirus, number three in Australia and 17 in the world. It used to take a thousand people to make a blood product for them to give me to build up my bone marrow because I wasn't producing red blood cells. That's when they put me on a pension at 42. Because back then they thought we were going to die anyway. But within four or five years... It vanished, and now I have decades to go. I have to catch up to my father. He was 93. That's amazing that it just disappeared. What did they tell you the reason for that was? None. I actually asked, has, has it happened to anybody else? And still don't know. That's quite ex- exceptional. That's extraordinary. Well, it, it should have killed me, the same as PCP but it didn't. Tell us what the living with HIV community in Melbourne was like in the 90s. Well, once again, I really didn't take much notice. Every once in a blue moon, I would see someone at the Alfred that I knew back in the 80s, and then the next minute I know they were dead. and It sort of lingers for a little bit, but you have to keep going. You do go through a stage of why them and not me. But I think the reason for me to be here now is to share my life experience with the younger generation. Because when I was young, I had no one to talk to. What are some of the key experiences you would like to share? Well, since then, I have had pneumonia a couple of times. I've had shingles. But I get over it. And when I was 50, Keith, my partner, said, he didn't want to um, go to gay venues anymore, so we stopped at the time, and this is 2004. So we travelled for 10 years. But the experience with HIV, because there was a pill. It was actually a pill to stop you getting it, and then the pills now, you live forever. You travelled for 10 years. Where did you go? The majority of the time, because Australia is so far away from a lot of places, 
we did Hong Kong a lot. And people go, why do you go to Hong Kong? I go, well, every time you, you, you get a new experience, you travel to islands, you, you, you go to Macau, you, you go to um, Shanghai and Taiwan, KL, Singapore, and always had a great time doing it. So you've got a real global experience of, of being a gay man over decades. Yeah, 40 years. And a real sense of, of life in, in gay Asian communities, by the sounds of it. No, we didn't mix in any gay Asian community. He had a boss that worked there, or one of his bosses that worked there. And so we'd, we'd go either to visit them or just enjoy ourselves. You're listening to our feature with Stephen Hawking on Radical Radio 3CR.
Anita Baker there, and you're listening to our Stephen Hawking feature on 3CR. Tell us about Keith. (laughs) Keith? Queen's birthday, 1984. I decided not to go out looking for anyone because every time you go out looking, you never find it. So on the Friday night, I went to Mandate and saw this guy down from Sydney. We chatted and his name was Keith. Nothing happened that night. We met up at Shed 14 at Docklands. which had around 10,000 people under one roof, which was fantastic. And that's probably why I've got tinnitus, is I used to stand in front of the speakers and let the, the boom go through my body. Then we went back to my place in South Melbourne. He was making coffee. I was sitting on the couch and slowly falling to sleep, so he put me to bed and went back out partying with his friends. So I woke up the next day thinking, I'm sure there's supposed to be someone here with me. Which there wasn't. And a day or two later, he's knocking on my front door. He goes, remember me? I went, "Uh uh-huh. And as we were talking, I said, well, I'm not moving to Sydney. So within three months, he moved to Melbourne. But in between, every weekend, he would either fly to Melbourne or pay for me to fly to Sydney. We were yin and yang... I was a loud one, he was a quiet one. But we lasted for 31 years. Un- until his passing. What do you think it was that kept you together so long? We were both born poor. I was housing commission, he was really poor in Bundaberg. But in the 70s he started on computers and never stopped. So he was the brains of the family and I was the worker. (laughs) And just the... Our our upbringing by our parents was basically the same. So I think we had that connection. So it sounds like you guys kind of knew from almost the very, very start that you were meant to be together. Yes, because I gave him a diamond ring before he even moved to Melbourne. I said, you can, you can keep it even if we don't last. But it's now back on my finger where it started from. What else would you like to tell us about Keith? Oh, Keith... Since he died, I found out from his workmates that he he was a joker, which he was never a joker at home. (laughs) He never shared work and private life, so they knew nothing about me. And at his wake, I had at... Oh, Oh... See, that's what happens the older you get. You have blanks. 
pub around the corner in Bank Place anyway. And his boss said to me, oh, one of the guys go, who, who do we have to replace Keith? And he said to him, there is nobody that can replace Keith. And that's when I found, about, found out about all the jokes and everything he used to play with them. Tell us how your life has changed since he died. He died the 22nd of December, 15. He had a list of everything he had to do before he died, but he didn't do it. So I had to go into survival mode for 2016 and go and cancel all his banking, his credit cards, put everything into my name, which took me up to August. But in between, I did have a social worker. And when I'd taken half of him up to Queensland to sprinkle into the ocean at Bagara, it was a perfect sunny day. And his whole family put a little bit of him in the ocean and I'd said, well, let's keep a bit and take to the cemetery for his mother. So at the end, we took a little bit and put it on top of his mother's grave. (laughs) She died 20 years ago. And it's the two of them, stubborn. She had bowel cancer, but never told anybody she wasn't well until it was too late. He had owner warts cancer, but he was supposed to have it checked a year earlier, but work came before doctors. And they're the only two that have passed in his family. So I always go and get myself checked, whatever. Keep up to date with injections, blood tests, and I've been undetectable since 2000, which I think's weird, when I only started medication in 96. Why do you think it's weird? Well, I thought it would have taken more than just a few years to be undetectable. And then what was it, four or five years ago? Oh, being undetectable, you can now have sex without a condom. I just wish I even got sex. (laughs) But it sounds like you go out a lot and you have lots of fun. Oh, yeah. I do not go out looking for anything. I just love music. And I've collected a few DJs along the way since 2017. And also been having great times going to uh, Sunday Licious with the lesbians for five years, six years. You're listening to an interview with Stephen Hawking, and here's Sia.
Listening to an interview with Stephen Hawking on Radical Radio 3CR. 3CR. So you really go out on the clubbing scene, um, and tell us about these DJs you've collected. Well, one's Damien Mack, good friend of mine. He was over last night. And we had a few drinks, and oh, this. Oh, me and my mind. There were a couple of lesbian DJs, another gay DJ, also a straight DJ, who calls me Mr. Hocking. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, DJs are kind of considered almost like the gods of the gay community, aren't they? Uh, Especially... Decades ago, do you still think that's the case? Oh, even more so now because of social media. Back in my day, Mona, Peter Mack, he just retired. I think he's 60 or just over 60. But his music was fabulous. And he started out as a barman at um, Mandate. It's interesting, isn't it? Like, you know, that the DJs are so celebrated in the gay community. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they are the gods of the community? Certainly the gods of the dance floor. Well, that... Exactly. And I would say, even behind that, most of them aren't up themselves. So it sounds like you really get your sense of community from going out clubbing at 70. Well, 69 next month. Tell us about the nourishment it gives you. Freedom. And I also have three nicknames, motor hips, the washing machine and the ever ready bunny because I never stop. That was more so in the early days, but now 
I even get on stage and dance with the DJs, which I've actually got a video from the other weekend that Peter Apostle, the straight DJ, took of me while I was while he was playing. And because I can't see myself doing it, I actually ask the youngsters, "Am I moving okay?" They go, "You're you're great." Ah, oh, so fifty works of practice <laughs> has worked then, has it? It sounds spiritual. I suppose so. I was brought up in that era from having one venue a week, a different venue each week, except for pokies. That was every Sunday from 1977. And just go. When the music started with dance floors and uh, I remember at the peel and the dance floor was the end of the peel before the back of it and I could be there dancing my heart away and still hold a beer and not spill it. Then go home and have to wring my clothes out because I sweated so much. 50 years of clubbing is extraordinary. Uh yeah, I mean, why, why, why does it just fuel you so much? It stops me from staying home and overthinking things. I'm now on antidepressants because of Keith dying. And the other good thing is, with antidepressants, I don't get a hangover. Really? Really. So, tell us a bit more about your clubbing. I want to hear more. Well, I didn't do it this weekend, or last weekend. But the weekend before, I went out to Thick and Juicy on the Friday night, got home at five in the morning. Wanted to go to another party in St Kilda at the Prince Wales on the Saturday. My mind wanted to, but my body's going, no, I think you better have a rest. Then on the Sunday afternoon after four, I went partying on a barge in the Yarra till about 11 o'clock and then ended up at another venue to five in the morning. I pushed myself as far as I can go. It sounds like a gym workout. And it sounds- well, it is. On my, phone, my phone tells me, first it used to be around... My hips would do 15 k's, and the latest ones are 18 k's, and it's the only exercise I get. So you actually measure it like a workout? Well, I don't think of it as a workout. It's only my phone that tells me what I've done. But it must keep you fit. Well, I am fit, except I do. I mean, well. I have emphysema, but I still smoke, but I've cut down smoking and I wear a patch. A lot of my friends go, if you give up smoking, you'll probably die. (laughs) But, yeah, everything with limits. It's like happy drugs with limits. How do you see your future over the next decade? Doing exactly what I'm doing now.
Because it sounds like it does keep you alive. Oh, yeah. I've got to catch up to my father at 93. He was first born in 18. He was the last one to die out of everybody in 2009. It sounds like he had a profound impact on you. Well, since my mother died, he never spoke about the war. And um, and what I've learnt since then is if he can do it, he suffered non-stop for 24-7 for three and a half years. I haven't suffered the way he suffered. And that keeps me going. You mentioned at the start that you want people to learn from your experiences. What are some of the other lessons you'd like them to learn from your experiences? Respect people. Stop looking at your phones and react and get to know people because it's the only, it's what humanity is made of. It's what we have to do. We need connection face-to-face, not on a nap. Stephen Hawking, it's been a great pleasure hearing your story. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs>